Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I will cover in this audio 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. I've entitled this section, Eight Bad Things That Happen If There Is No Resurrection of the Dead. The context is chapter 15. The first 11 verses talked about the resurrection of Christ, which of course is fundamental and basic. And then Paul, in this section, turns to the resurrection of believers, not and not only believers, but of all of mankind. So I'm going to distinguish the two resurrections by saying the resurrection of Christ on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm going to say the resurrection of mankind on the other. So we start in verse 12, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, of course, that if there, he means to say yes, I've often wondered why they don't translate that as since, because that's obviously what Paul meant. But strictly speaking in the Greek, it's if. But Paul means since. Since Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's because Paul went everywhere preaching that as well as the other apostles. How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So Paul argues, hey, at least there's one resurrection of the dead is Christ. So how can you go around saying there's no resurrection of the dead of other people? So Paul in this section is going to tie together the two resurrections, the resurrection of Christ on the one hand and the resurrection of humanity on the other hand. He's going to tie them closely together and show that you can't have one without the other. That word raised there, the Greek verb form expresses the certainty of Christ's resurrection as the NIV study Bible says. And this certainty is expressed seven times in this passage in verses 4, 12 through 14, 16 through 17 and 20. So we're going to hear a lot about Christ's resurrection in this section, which is basically focused on the resurrection of humanity, not just Christ's resurrection. So you see there, the, the two things are emphasized hand in hand in this section. Now, Paul says, how can you say? Paul sounds incredulous that some Corinthians can say something so fundamentally wrong. How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? That's absurd. It's ridiculous. Unfortunately, in today's church, there are hyper-preterist heretics who say exactly that. They divorce the, integration, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the resurrection of all humanity. They do believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which means they're heretics. I'm not saying they're not going to heaven. I'm sure they are, some of them. Maybe all of them. I don't know. But they are certainly not teaching orthodox doctrine when they deny the resurrection of the dead. How can you, hyperpreterists, say something so stupid as to say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Well... A lot of people have tried this, denying the resurrection of the dead. Here's some scriptures. Acts 17:32. When they, this is the Greek philosophers that Paul ran into on the hill of Mars, the Areopagus in Athens, Acts 17:32. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, ridicule Paul. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So they were ridiculing Paul when he started teaching the resurrection of the dead. Acts 26, 8. This is Paul speaking in his hearing before Agrippa. After his third journey, after he went back to Jerusalem, got arrested, went to Caesarea, why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So apparently there were some people that were quite skeptical of this idea of the resurrection of the dead. Of course, that's talking about the resurrection of Jesus there, but it's the same idea. Nobody can get resurrected from the dead. This is just too, this is too astounding. As I said in the last audio, the resurrection is, the resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to the gospel. It's, it's so fundamental. You don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You aren't, you aren't a Christian, and you ain't saved, and you're not delivered from your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? 
Paul, again, is referring to people in Corinth who's going to say, what? How are the dead raised? Then they start quibbling over what kind of body they're going to have when when they're raised. So it takes a lot of faith in Jesus to believe this, and it does. I remember resurrection of the dead. I never had so much trouble with Jesus being raised from the dead as I had trouble because of my skeptical background with believing that all believers, as well as all mankind in general, were going to be raised from the dead as this common Christian doctrine taught by everyone everywhere and all places. Now, some people, as Paul says, some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. It's not exactly certain who these people were. Here's some speculations. Could be Hymenaeus and Philetus. These are the hyper-preterist heretics from Ephesus who had moved, who might have moved over to Corinth, as John Gill suggests. They were the ones that deny the resurrection of the dead. And Paul said their faith was gangrenous and their shipwreck in the faith of some and so forth. Another speculation is that these people denying the resurrection of the dead were followers of Simon Magus and Serenthus, as John Gill says. I don't know why he mentions Simon Magus as denying the resurrection of the dead, but Serenthus, who flourished between 50 and 100 A.D., he was an early Christian Gnostic. He denied that God made the physical world. He said that the human Jesus was adopted by the divine Jesus, and the divine Jesus left the human Jesus' crucifixion, which means that the physical Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Serenthus further said that Jesus was not to rise until the last day like all others. That's kind of an adoptionist type heresy. Oh, here's why Simon Magus is mentioned that John Gill says is because Simon Magus denied the resurrection. I wasn't aware of that. Simon Magus denied the resurrection. A lot of people deny the resurrection. It's the either of Jesus or of mankind. Heretics love to jump on that doctrine. If you want to smell a heretic, listen to them talk about the resurrection of the dead. If they don't believe in it, they're a heretic. If they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of people. It could be some Sadducean Jews, Jews who were a member of the sect of the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, as you know. They could have been there in Corinth. But whoever it was, Paul sets them straight. He goes on in verse 13, if there's, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. In other words, if you're going to deny a resurrection of the dead, you're going to deny Jesus' resurrection. If you're going to deny the resurrection of the dead, period, well, then you've included Jesus in all of humanity, and he was not raised. Or it could mean that what the critics are saying here is there's no resurrection of humanity, but we still believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's easier to say that people were denying resurrection of the dead, period, both of believers and of Jesus. However, it is possible that you could deny the resurrection of humanity and still believe in the resurrection of Jesus. After all, today's current hyperproterist heretics do exactly that. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says it's illogical to do that, to deny the resurrection of the dead and affirm the resurrection, to deny the resurrection of the, of humanity, but affirm the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, quote, if there be no general resurrection, which is the consequent, then there can have been no resurrection of Christ, which is the antecedent. Well, now, Actually, in strict logic, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is not correct if he's trying to say that what the hyperproterists are doing here is illogical, because it's not illogical. For example, if I say, if it rains today, I will carry my umbrella. If it rains today is the antecedent, I will carry my umbrella as the consequent. If I deny the consequent, I will not carry my umbrella. Does that tell you whether it's going to rain or not? No. It could be sunny. It could be rainy. I might have forgotten to carry my umbrella either way. It doesn't prove a thing. The causation does not run backwards, in other words. It runs from antecedent to consequent from left to right. So it is logically possible to deny the resurrection of humanity and still affirm the resurrection of Jesus. However, 
It might be logical, but it ain't scriptural because Paul tightly ties the two things together here as we go through this passage. And in fact, I'll drop down two verses and read 1 Corinthians 15, 16. Paul says this, for if the dead, or that's humanity, if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. So you see the two are tied together closely. You cannot affirm one without affirming the other. You cannot, you cannot affirm the resurrection of Jesus without affirming the resurrection of mankind. You cannot deny the resurrection of mankind without at the same time denying the resurrection of Jesus. Now, since Paul knows that the Corinthians believe in the resurrection of Jesus, he's going to hit that real hard. Look, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, therefore you must believe in the resurrection of humanity. Adam Clark says that it is possible that there were some at Corinth who admitted Christ rose but denied that mankind will rise. Some people say, no, the heretics there denied both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of humanity. Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. You deny one, you deny the other. We go now to 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. I said there were going to be eight bad things that happen if you deny the resurrection of humanity. The first is mentioned in the previous verse in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. This is the first bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Then the Jesus that you believe in, he didn't rise again from the dead either, and everything Paul was teaching was a lie. That's the first bad thing. Verse 14 is the second bad thing. If Christ has not been raised, then our, that means Paul and his fellow apostles, proclamation is without foundation. That's the second bad thing. So that would mean that Paul was risking his life going all over the world preaching a lie. Well, of course, that's ridiculous, but that's what denying the resurrection of the dead leads to, a logical absurdity or a practical absurdity. This, of course, proves that the resurrection of the dead was an integral part of the gospel. If you don't believe in the resurrection of humanity, then you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then the gospel that's being preached is worthless. So that means the resurrection of Jesus is a very big integral part of the gospel. Proclamations without foundation, if we don't believe in the resurrection of humanity. But without foundation, the Greek there means empty and unreal. An empty and unreal gospel. Is that what you want, Corinthians? We'll keep on denying the resurrection of the dead. Paul continues in verse 14. He says, not only is our proclamation without foundation, so is your faith. You don't have a faith. Your faith is built on quicksand if you deny the resurrection of humanity, because then you also deny the resurrection of Jesus, because the two go together, because Jesus is the head, and you don't resurrect the head without resurrecting the body. And you don't resurrect the body without resurrecting the head. They go together. So that's the third bad consequences of not believing bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Your faith has got no foundation. Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 15. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God. That's the fourth bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. The false teachers in Corinth were making Paul out to be a liar. He's going around preaching, hey, early Christians and me, I had a vision, and the early Christians saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. They saw him physically, and now you're making them out to be a liar. And not only a liar about, in general, but a liar about God and holy things. Here's a good quote from Job chapter 13, verse 7. Would you testify unjustly on God's behalf or speak deceitfully for him? This is Job speaking to his false friends. No, Job says, that's a terrible thing to do to testify unjustly about God. John Gill says, what greater scandal or a more odious character can be fixed upon a man than to be a false witness? Adam Clark says this, as having testified the fact of Christ's resurrection as a matter which, our, which ourselves had witnessed when we knew that we bore testimony to a falsehood. 
But could 500 persons agree in this imposition? And if they did, is it possible that someone would not discover the cheat when he could have no interest in keeping the secret and might greatly promote his secular interest by making the discovery? Such a case never occurred and never can occur. The testimony, therefore, concerning the resurrection of Christ is incontrovertibly true. Amen, Brother Clark. All right, I didn't read the, finish reading the, verse, the end of verse 15, so let me read the whole verse again. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, in fact, the dead are not raised. So, in other words, no resurrection? Our gospel is a lie. We are false witnesses. That's the fourth bad consequence of denying the resurrection of the dead. We go to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. They go together. You don't raise the body without the head. You don't raise the head without the body. This is a repeat of the argument I've just mentioned in verses 13 and 15. The repetition here implies the unanswerable force of the argument, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. This is a great verse for hyperpreterist heretics. If the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. So don't go around hyperpreterist heretics and telling me that the dead aren't raised, but Christ is raised. No, that ain't what Paul says. If you go around denying the resurrection of the dead, you're denying the resurrection of Jesus, and please get out of my church. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. I say that in a loving manner, of course. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sin. Your faith is worthless. That's the fifth bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Worthless. And you are still in your sin. That's the sixth bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Why are you still in your sin? Because Jesus had to rise again from the dead in order to conquer sin. In order to conquer the, that which is the wages of sin, which is death, he had to conquer it. He had to rise again from the dead to do it. If he didn't raise again, rise again from the dead, then the presumption would be, hey, he was justly executed by the Romans. So how can a dead criminal save anybody from sins if he wasn't resurrected from the dead? Paul says this has the same idea here in Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised. Why? For our justification. You want justification just as if you've never seen a, de a declaration of your legal righteousness before God the Father? Well, by golly, Jesus was raised for that justification. And if he wasn't raised, you ain't justified. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, we will, will we be saved by his life, saved by his resurrected life, by the fact that he came back from the dead and, and, and lived again. We become reconciled to God, which is, of course, part of, is a consequent of justification. So you see, of course, the resurrection of Christ is fundamental to the Christian faith. And without it, you're still in your sins. And if you deny that people are resurrected from the dead, then in effect you have been denying that Christ has not been raised from the dead. And bad results flow from that. 1 Corinthians 15:18. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. This is the seventh bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. That means all your friends and relatives who are Christians, they've fallen asleep, they've died, and that's it. It's over. They're not going to have the hope of a resurrected body. I mean, in heaven, we're going to have our bodies. People are going to see us. We're going to see them. But if you just think that people rot in the grave forever, that's, that's a great hope, is it not? <laughs> the blessed hope. We're going to die, and the worms are going to crawl through our corpses, and that's it. It's nonsense. We have perished if Jesus has perished because we're in Christ. And if Christ has died and still in the grave, then we're dead and still in the grave. However, if, if Jesus has risen, then we're risen with him. We're in intimate union with Christ. Now, here's some scriptures showing that the dead in Christ have, in fact, not perished. John 5:25. Jesus says, I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That means come to life again. 
John 5, 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. What could be more clear? That's the words of Jesus. You deny that, you're denying Jesus. John 11, 25 through 26. This is around the time of Lazarus' resurrection. Jesus said to her, I think that was one of Lazarus' sisters. I didn't look it up. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? That's not just talking about spiritual life forever. That's talking about physical life forever. Again, because it was in the context of, rise, of, ri, of raising Lazarus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, and again, that if is really has the sense of sense, because obviously Paul assumes that he and his fellow Christians or his fellow apostles, depending on who the we refers to, uh, we have put our hope in Christ for this life only. If we have done that, and of course we have, excuse me, have not, he assumes that since we have not put our hope in Christ for this life only, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, which of course we have not, if we have done that, we should be pitied more than anyone. And Paul doesn't assume that they are going to be pitied at all. This is the eighth bad consequence of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Your life is miserable and pitiful. Why should Christians be pitied if they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead? Well, they get persecuted and suffer hardships all f through their life for being a Christian, with, but then they get no reward in the afterlife for it. This is a sentiment expressed by the NIV Study Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. That's the idea. We're pitied because we don't get rewarded with a resurrection body at the end of the world. But since we have put our hope in Christ for this life, we do get rewarded with a resurrection body at the end of the world. Now, Paul says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, who's the we? Well, if he's referring to we Christians in general, let me give you a quote from John Gill that would apply to that. Quote, these not only deny themselves the pleasures, honors, and profits of this world, but are exposed continually to the hatred, reproach, and persecution of it. They are chastised by God as other men are, that they may not be condemned with the world. And yet they must be condemned if Christ is not risen. They are harassed and distressed by Satan, who follows them with his temptations and suggestions, which are so many fiery darts, which give them great pain and uneasiness when others are unmolested by him. They groan under a body of sin they carry about with them, and desire and long to be unclothed, that they might be clothed upon with glory and immortality. And yet these very desires and earnest longings after a blessed eternity do but add to their misery if there's no foundation for them. Well, John Gill, in his prolix way, in his 19th century rhetorical way, has said in a very eloquent way that, by golly, we're going to get raised from the dead because it wouldn't be just otherwise if we were not raised from the dead. If Paul is referring to we apostles, Gill says this concerning that, quote, the apostles, quote, had little of their comforts of this life, being continually exposed to hardships and persecution for the sake of Christ, were set forth as a spectacle to angels and men, were accused, were accounted the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things, and suffered many indignities and great reproach and affliction. After all that, you're going to rot in the grave? Paul's telling the Corinthians, don't be stupid. That's absurd. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, if Paul is saying, hey, he's been raised, so that means we're going to be raised too. We are firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means Christ is raised and then the firstfruits are raised. See how they're integrally tied together. You cannot split them apart. Now that's referring to the Passover firstfruit 
ritual, I'll put it that way, the first sheaf of the harvest was given to the Lord. The scriptures for that in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 26. This is the first fruits were a token that all the harvest belonged to God. You gave the first fruit saying, okay, here are the first fruits, give them to the temple, give them to God. But that means all the harvest, even the part that we're eating, that belongs to God too. Great symbolism there. And so just in the same way, Christ's resurrection is a token that all believers will be raised also. As the NIV Study Bible points out, here's a scripture talking about the resurrection of the dead, which hyperpreterists and certain people in Corinth denied. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. You don't have the resurrection of the dead. You have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by revelation for the Lord. We who are still alive in the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. Jesus told Paul this personally in a vision. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, the doctrine of resurrection is an encouragement because you're to be, of all men, to be most pitied if there's no resurrection of the dead. But Jesus, but Paul said, if you do believe in the resurrection of the dead, encourage one another with those words. Now, first fruits could mean first in dignity. Jesus is the, the preeminent resurrected body, if you will. Or it could mean first in time. He was raised and then Christians are raised after, after him. I really think it's both. But if you take it as meaning Jesus was resurrected first in time, you have a problem because there were other resurrections that were actually before Jesus. Here's some examples. Elijah raised the widow of Sarepta's son. Elisha raised the Shunammite's son. The man that touched the prophet's bone when he was laid in, the gra- laid in his grave somewhere in the Old Testament. I forgot where. Jairus' daughter raised by Jesus. The widow of Nain's son raised by Jesus. Lazarus was raised by Jesus. And you say, oh my, well, you could say, well, that's a problem. So we're going to say that Jesus is, was the first fruits in the sense that he was first in dignity over all other Christians who were raised. I don't think that that's the best way to solve that little problem because all of the resurrections that happened before Jesus were not really the same as Jesus's resurrections. First of all, they didn't resurrect themselves. Somebody else had to do it. Jesus resurrected himself. But even beyond that, these earlier so-called resurrections that happened before Jesus' resurrection, they weren't really resurrections. They were more properly termed, they should be more properly termed resuscitations because they were raised not to eternal life, not to a glorified state, but back to their mortal state. And they had to die again. Jesus rose to never die again. So they're not the same. So Jesus is the first fruit, both in dignity and in time, compared to all the resurrections that occurred after his time, or that will occur after his time. Now, the timing of the Jewish offering of firstfruits is very appropriate, as John Gill and Adam Clark point out. Passover was on a Thursday night, which was, of course, the Jewish Friday. The day following that day, that Passover, the Jewish Friday, was a Sabbath day, Saturday. And the day following the Sabbath was the day that the firstfruits were offered. Well, what was the day that was following the Saturday? Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. So Jesus was offered as the first fruits of all other Christians who were going to be resurrected. He was offered on the same day of the Jewish festival that the Jews were offering first fruits for their harvest. Perfect symbolism. Notice how Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:20 says, But now Christ has been raised with total confidence, firmness, 
no quivering in his voice, no hesitation. We go to verse 21, verse Corinthians 15, Paul continues, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. He's tracking his thoughts that he has given us in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, 12 says this, therefore not as sin came, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's talking about Adam. Death came through a man, Adam. The resurrection of the dead also came through, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. That would be Jesus. Let's go back to Genesis and see how death came through man. Genesis three seventeen through 19, And he, God, said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree, which I commanded you, do not eat from it, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust because of his sin. That's how death came through the world. Now, resurrection of the dead came through a man too. That's the second Adam. That was Jesus, or the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15:45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I never noticed until just today that there's a parallel, a, a sort of a parallelism in this verse. The first man, Adam, had a living, had a, the spirit of life put into him, but the last Adam, Jesus, puts a life-giving spirit into other people. Romans 5, 12 through 19, this is the famous passage here about how sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death spread to all men because all sinned. And then just dropping down to verse 17, since by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? You know that famous passage in Romans 5, and Paul's just repeating that in one sentence here in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. We go now to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now when he says all will be made alive, there's some options there. He could be saying that all will be made spiritually alive by being born again, but I don't think so because the whole context here is talking about the resurrection of the dead physically. So I assume that he's talking about all will be resurrected physically. Then I've studied Bible agrees with me on that. And again, verses that say that we're going to be resurrected physically, I've already read them to you in John 5:25 and 1 Thessalonians 4:16 through 17. John 5:25, those who hear will live, those who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live be, will be raised. 1 Thessalonians 4:16-17, the dead in Christ will rise. And of course, in, as an Adam all die, this shows that Adam is the common parent of all mankind. He's the federal representative head of all of his posterity. And all infants are born by nature as sinners, even though they have not yet done sinful acts. There's some basic theology there for you. Now notice Paul says, also in Christ, all will be made alive. That does not mean that everybody in the world is saved. That means if you're in Christ, all will be made alive. There's an implied condition there in Christ. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 15, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection will of Jesus and the, the first fruits, Jesus and the, and the harvest, the Christians, mankind, Christians, uh, is in its own order. Well, what does that mean, in his own order? Here's some options. The Old Testament saints are resurrected before the New Testament saints. John Gill denies that, and I think properly. I don't think Paul's thinking that way. 
It could be each in his own order. Christ goes first because he has more dignity than those who come afterwards. Ah, we just talked about that. I don't think so. Could refer to ordinary Christian uh, Christian workers of being raised first because they have dignity, and then ordinary Christians raised next. I don't think so. It could be in age, older people are raised first and younger people are raised next. Gill denies that one too. These are kind of silly speculations. What it is, according to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill, Jesus is the first and Christians are next. There's your order right there, each in his own order. Christ is first, Christians are second. That's first in time, I think, as well as dignity. We go to 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. And I've got to say right here, this is the classic silver bullet for the premillennial theory. Because in verse 23, we got all the Christians being raised. And then in verse 24, we got the end of the world when God hands, when Jesus hands over the kingdom, the church, to God the Father. Probably the church to God the Father. So you got resurrection, and that's the end of it. Well, the premillennial theory says you have the resurrection of the, of the just, of Christians, and then you have a thousand-year millennial reign, and then you have the resurrection of the unjust in the end. you got a thousand-year period in there that Paul just completely omits in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And I saw that. I said, that's the end of pre-mill theory for me. If you want to still hold on to that theory, well, that's fine. Then you can one day explain to me how you have a society when you got raised, glorified Christians, you got unglorified Christians, you got unbelievers all living together happily in one harmonious, diverse community. I don't believe that for a second. And that's what you have to believe, logically, if you believe in the pre-mill theory. So Jesus is going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father. What is the kingdom? Well, I assume, of course, that it's the kingdom of God. The church on earth, as John Gill says. But now, Alfred Barnes affirms a different idea. He says it's the kingdom of all the demonic. It, it refers to all the demonic and worldly kingdoms who oppose Christ's rule. So then Jesus is going to hand over the kingdoms of this world to God the Father so God can smash them. Well, that's very interesting. I don't think that's what it means, but it's very interesting. For one thing, it does in English, at least it doesn't quite sound right. Hand over the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't sound like kingdoms of evil ones. I just thought I'd mention it because I thought it was interesting. Assuming it's the kingdom of God that's going to be handed over to the Father, that means that God will be in direct contact with believers rather than mediatorily through Christ, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says. And we will see God face to face, if you will. All this is going to happen when he, God, abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. Now, these rulers are, one option is that this, this refers to all those mighty powers that opposed God and resisted his reign, as Barnes says. God's going to abolish them. That's it. No more opposition to me when the end comes. Won't that be nice? Ellicott, the commentator, says actually it refers to any kind of ruler, bad and, and good rulers, all Evil rulers and all intermediate rulers, people who a just ruler of a, of a government over a kingdom and so forth, they're going to be abolished too. We don't have any need for them anymore. So both is true. I'm not sure what Paul was referring to, whether he's referring to the bad guy, bad rulers or the good rulers too. When he says all rule and authority and power, authority and power is just a fancy way of saying rule. It's, it's a repetitious sort of thing. So he's talking about rulers, demonic or by the way, that can only be spiritual. It can be spiritual rulers, demonic as well as earthly rulers, worldly rulers, that are abolished when Jesus resurrects the just and when the end comes. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Now this is an interesting verse because we have Jesus reigning 
but all of his enemies are not put under his feet yet. Well, how can Jesus be reigning if his enemies are still there? Well, how, how this verse says that Jesus reigns even though he has not yet abolished all rule and authority and power, as he says in verse 24. That happens at the end, but this is before the end. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet at the end. How can that be? Well, here's an analogy. A political leader is president over his country, but there are rebels still operating in his territory. They are fighting a last chance, desperate, guerrilla-like war. But it's just a matter of time before the president's generals mop them up. That's what's going to happen. Jesus is reigning now. He's in mop-up operations. He's going to win his elect to him. I don't care how bad the world looks. I don't care if the coronavirus is spreading all over the heck, everywhere. Jesus is going to reign. I don't care if the atheists are running America and are running China. I don't care. Jesus is going to abolish them all. Pleasant to think about. Of course, that rain, I'm assuming that's rain during the church. Pre-mill say it means it's raining during the millennial kingdom. I don't believe that for one second. He's reigning now until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Even if you do believe in the millennial kingdom, they were still in the millennial, in the so-called pre-mill millennial kingdom. There are people who have raised themselves up against Christ, even in that kingdom. So either on either view, you still got the problem of how can Jesus reign while their enemies have not been put under his feet yet. And the answer is, is because he's ruling and they're hiding out, fighting a guerrilla war. Until Jesus puts all his enemies under his feet, Jesus is going to reign. What does it mean under his feet? This is an Old Testament expression for complete subjection, as the NIV Study Bible says. A defeated general would kneel, and the conquering general would put his foot on his neck. This verse is an allusion to Psalms 110, verse 1, as the NIV Study Bible says. Let me read it. Psalms 110.1, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus on Tuesday of Passion Week said to the Pharisees in Matthew 22.44, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Ephesians 1.22, Paul says this, and he put everything under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, his head over everything for the church. I mean, this under his feet idea is great. You know, you sometimes get overwhelmed by all the opposition to Christ that there is in the world. Hey, they're going to have their necks bowed before God, and God is going to have his foot firmly planted on the back of their necks. So we don't need to worry. And, the, of course, the worst enemy, not just the rulers of this world, the demonic and earthly rulers of this world who are opposed to God, but how about death itself? 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be abolished is death. After God takes care of all the demons and worldly rulers who have opposed his reign, the last enemy he's going to abolish is death. Revelation 20:14. death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In other words, death itself is going to be killed. The death of death, as John Owen once titled one of his limited atonement books, the death of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this death, where's your sting? That verse is used a lot at funerals. I used to think, I, I, don't tell me that death doesn't have a sting. I've had friends die and it hurts, man. It hurts real bad. I remember thinking, was well, the Bible not true? Didn't Paul say that death, where's your sting? It must be my fault for not, for feeling anguish over this death. Well, but Paul is talking about at the end of time. Death, where's your sting? Death will be conquered at the end of time. That doesn't mean that death's not going to hurt us right now when you go to a funeral of your friend or, or loved one. Hebrews 2.14, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus, all, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. 
The death is death is destroyed. The devil is destroyed. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire. It's all over, folks. Jesus will reign in life and God will reign in life. That's some nice eschatology there. First Corinthians fifteen twenty seven. For God has put everything under his feet. Under his, I'm going to give you there's a bunch of pronouns in this verse and it's confusing as heck. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to complain. After all, he was an inspired writer of God, so we have to figure it out. So I'm going to put the 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 references of the pronouns in the verses I read it. For God has put everything under his, under Jesus' feet. But when it says everything is put under him, under Jesus, it is obvious that he, the Father who puts everything under him, under Jesus, is the exception. In other words, the Father doesn't put himself under Jesus. That would be absurd. This is a quote, by the way, from Psalms 8, 6. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Now, that psalm was referring to people in general, not not Jesus. Here's another quote talking about putting putting everything under under Jesus' feet. I already mentioned this to you once. Matthew 22, 44. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's the Lord God Yahweh declared to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I, the Lord God Yahweh, put your enemies under your Jesus' feet. Psalm 110.1. This is the declaration of the Lord of the Lord to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So anyway, you got the idea is that God has put everything under Jesus' feet. But now he says, but of course I don't put myself under Jesus' feet. Now, that's so obvious, and Paul says it's obvious here. He says it is obvious that God didn't put himself under Jesus' feet. Well, it's so obvious, one wonders why he bothered to put it in. This is a parenthetical verse. It doesn't really fit the flow of the argument, except as a parenthesis. Why did he do it? Adam Clark says it's to show that he does not mean the divine nature will be subject to the human nature. He's just that Paul is just trying to protect the divinity of God. Well, maybe. I don't know why he would do that at this particular point. But at any rate, he, Paul did it. We know that God is not going to be subject, subject to Jesus. We go to 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him. Let me get the pronoun straight here. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one, to the Father, who's the Father who subjected everything to Jesus so that God, the Father, may be all in all. Or God, the Trinity, maybe, may be all in all. Now, notice that Christ is subject to God here. This is this verse is pregnant with theological implications. The subject there, and the reason I say that is because it's, if you start saying that Jesus is somehow less than the Father, you end up in Arianism. Is Jesus a created God, a junior God, a Jehovah's Witnesses type God? No, that's not what it means when it says that everything is subject to Christ. Then the Son, then the, Jesus will be subject to 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 God. That means administratively subject, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. In the sense that after Christ has all things subjected to his power, he will turn it over to the Father. The Father is the administrative head. This does not in any way suggest that the Son is inferior to the Father in any way. Any more than a child is inferior in worth to his parent, even though the parent is the functional leader in the home. Or a wife is subject to her husband, even though the the husband is the functional leader in the home. In fact, this is called theologically the economic subordination of Christ or the functional subordination of the Christ is sometimes called, called as the NIV Study Bible puts it. This does not imply an inferior, inferiority of dignity or deity. And this word subject is a word that makes hyper-egalitarians, and feminists, and so forth 
Makes them shake in their boots. Now, if the Son of God is not embarrassed to say that he is functionally subordinate to God the Father, why would a wife be embarrassed to say that she is subject to her husband? In fact, the scripture actually says that. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul says it without embarrassment and without shame. I, just, I heard a, an, uh, the start of an audio. I had to turn it off because I was so disgusted. But he started out, this guy says, I'm going to talk about the role of women in the church. And I tried to get all my friends to, t- to take this sermon over for me. And I was so scared. Oh, what am I getting myself into? And he apologized and apologized and apologized. And everybody's laughing. Ha, 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 ha. Hey, why should we be embarrassed about the Bible? I don't give a flying ding-dong damnation about what the feminist culture the woke social justice warrior idiots who now control, apparently they're about to control the Democrat Party. I speak now as Bernie Sanders is the front runner, and if he wins, then he will control the nation. I don't give a rip what these people say. There is nothing wrong with being of, with functional subordinate submission, either for a child to a parent or a wife to a husband, and, either, and also with Jesus to God. Now, there's three types of heretics that can abuse this verse. First of all, the Eutychian heretics, the monophysite heretics, who believe that Jesus was one divine nature and his human nature got swallowed up. Well, here you could say, oh, the Son himself is subject to God the Father. That means God the Father, the divinity, swallows up the Son in his humanity. Therefore, the humanity is bye-bye. Oh, no, you can't. No, that's an abuse. Or a Sibelian could abuse this verse, a modalist. They could say, see there, when Jesus subjected himself to the Son, he changed his role between being the Son to being the Father classical modalism that's wrong of course and this verse absolutely does not teach that and as i mentioned earlier an arian could also use this verse oh see jesus is subject to god the father therefore he's inferior in his divinity he's a created divinity and he's inferior to god in his essence that's nonsense also now let me mention this verse in reference to a theological debate which i ran across last year the debate over whether jesus is eternally subordinate to the father now what does that mean well Nobody denies that Jesus was functionally subordinate to the Father while on earth because Jesus said, I do nothing apart from the Father. He prayed to the Father, do I do this? What is your will? Lord, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Obviously, Jesus subordinated his will, his desires, to what God the Father wanted. But the question becomes, what happens when he was raised again from the dead and went to back up into heaven? Was he still functionally subordinate or did that change because of his resurrection? And is he now functionally equal with the Father? And they make joint decisions rather than the Father making decisions and Jesus carrying them out. Well, let's read this verse. And when everything is subject to Christ, that's at the end of the world, then the Son himself will also be subject to the Father. The Son himself will be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, Jesus. That's the Father. The Son will be subject to the Father when? When everything is subject to Christ. And when is that? At the end of the world, when God is all in all. It sounds to me like that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. I wish I'd have had this verse when I listened to this podcast. Well, these two Reformed Brotherhood 30-year-old theologians, and they actually, I don't mean to dismiss them because of their young age. They were very, very sharp. That's why I listened to them. But they acted like it was the end of the world that somebody would believe this. And by golly, they weren't going to sign the Nashville Statement against gender confusion and homosexuality and all that. They weren't going to sign that because, by golly, the people that were behind that thing believed in the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. And what a horrible heresy this was. Well, okay, if it's a horrible heresy, how do you explain this verse? 1 Corinthians 15, 28. At the end of the world, Christ will be subject to the Father. Well, I haven't studied that, th- that controversy, so I'm not going to get into it. 
There's so many theological controversies that I'm going to not be able to get to before I die, unfortunately. But when I die, it won't matter anymore, will it? At the end of the world, Paul finishes up by saying that God will be all in all when Jesus subjects himself to God the Father. And God may be all in all. Now, what does that mean, all in all? God will shown to be su supreme and sovereign in all things. Now, it could be that means God the Father, or it could mean God the Trinity. John Gill says it's God the Trinity. I don't have any problem with that. I wouldn't be surprised. Here's another all-in-all -all verse, Colossians 3.11. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, there's nothing besides him. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with this section of 1 Corinthians 15. We will continue with Paul's discussion of the resurrection of Christians, not just the resurrection of Jesus, in our next audio starting with verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 15. I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one. 